Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, health officials say there is some cause for cautious optimism in the fight against the coronavirus. In late March, when the growth rate was the fastest, we saw case numbers doubling every three days. But in recent days, we've observed a doubling time of over 10 days. This means the epidemic is slowing down. The current slowing rate of infection doesn't mean business as usual anytime soon. With spring coming, people are uh, looking outside, wanting to get out, wanting this to be over. I understand that. It will be weeks more before we can seriously consider uh, loosening the, the restrictions. It would be terrible if we were to release restrictions too early and find out that we're suddenly back in another big wave of COVID-19. And Andrew Scheer accuses the Liberals of shirking accountability by not agreeing to in-person sittings of Parliament. The onus is really on the government to explain why why they don't want to be held accountable, why they aren't willing to answer questions on behalf of all Canadians. It's Thursday, April 16th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. Dr. Theresa Tam and other public health officials are saying there is cause for cautious optimism, obviously emphasizing caution here. Uh, are, uh, does the evidence show that we are starting to turn the corner a little bit in the fight against the coronavirus? Well, I think when you look at the epidemiological curve, which is the, 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 the metric by which the government and the health authorities judge us, the answer is an unequivocal yes. Um, the number of new cases is far less than it was in mid-March. Understandably, the government and the health authorities don't want to jump the gun on this and relax restrictions before they're certain that the the worst is over, at least in the first wave. But I think there are definite signs for cautious optimism. At the same time, though, of course, uh, nobody's talking about reducing restrictions anytime soon. Uh, The Prime Minister emphasized it's going to be a while before it's business as usual. Uh, so uh, we've got to strike the right balance here. And I know government leaders are, are reluctant to start talking about lifting restrictions because they don't want people to, to start freelancing. Um, but uh, do, they, do they need to give us more of a sense of when this is all going to change or, or at least what the plan is or what the criteria are for, for restrictions to be lifted? Well, I think that timeline is what everybody wants to know. I think there's going to be growing pressure on the government to provide a timeline more than more certain than a, a few weeks, which is the last thing that Justin Trudeau has said. I think the Conservatives are working on a timeline, and I think they will release one pretty soon, which will increase the pressure on the government. The other thing is, of course, that that um, really this is in the in the lap of the provinces rather than the uh, the federal government. And when you look at the map of cases. What you've really got is a, a, a real problem in Quebec and Ontario. And, and in the West, it's far less of a problem. And, and uh, Premier Horgan in, in BC is, is already turning his mind to reopening the economy. I mean, they, they had 44 new cases yesterday. Their total caseload is about 1,500, which for a, a province the size of British Columbia is a pretty good result. I mean, they have managed to flatten the curve pretty successfully. Same with Alberta, they're just under 2,000 cases. The Atlantic provinces, it's uh, the number of cases. Uh, Nova Scotia is a little bit higher, but New Brunswick is very low. Prince Edward Island is very low. So 
it may not be a uniform restriction uh, relaxation across the country. We might see this done piecemeal and uh, and earlier in some of the provinces that have been less affected. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what, what each pre- uh, provincial premier has to say about that as well. Um, now, what about some of the implications of all of this? I know you've written about the food supply in this country. Um, with this kind of global lockdown and restrictions on the movement of not just people, but in some cases goods, uh, what impact are we going to see in that area? Well, the Agriculture Minister uh, yesterday admitted that there may be shortages on the shelves, that we may see less variety, we may see higher prices. I think that that is, is almost inevitable. The government has been reluctant to talk about this because obviously they want to see panic, panic buying of, of food or drugs. But there are problems. The reality is that as COVID starts hitting production plants, we're starting to see closures. I mean, the nature of working in a, in a meat processing plant, it's a kind of elbow-to-elbow job. It means that social distancing is difficult. And we have seen plant closures in Canada uh, and more recently in the United States where the, one of the largest meatpacking plants in South Dakota was closed. And it's the CEO of that company said this is going to mean the, the meat supply is affected. So I think that uh, if that continues and, and there are signs that it will continue. There are two large meatpacking plants in, uh, or meat processing plants in Alberta, and the unions want them closed so that they can be cleaned. They process 80% of the beef in Canada, so I think it's inevitable we are going to see shortages on the shelves of, of all kinds of, of uh, meat. The other big problem, I think, is a, that has been under-publicized is the pharmaceuticals market. 50% of our drugs, or generic drugs, are produced in India, and India has an export ban right now. So it's very hard to get drugs out of India. The Pharmacists Association has worked its way around this by recommending restrictions of 30-day refills on prescriptions down from 90 days. So, you, so people are going to start finding, well, when they need their prescription refilled, they can't get it for three or four months. They can only get it for a month. They therefore have to pay the, 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 the pharmacist fee probably three times as opposed to one time. And the, the, the big player in this is the drug distributor McKesson, which is the wholesaler. The drugs come into McKesson and then distributes them to the pharmacies. It has placed restrictions on shipments to pharmacies in the last few weeks. And they tell me that if, if this thing lasts through to September or October with no relief, then this is going to be a real, real problem. Obviously, if the, if the crisis ends more quickly and the export ban in India ends more quickly, then we're not going to see critical shortages. Critical shortages meaning people can't get their prescription fulfilled. Right. But there will be shortages nonetheless. And uh, McKesson offered me the example, for, for example, of muscle relaxants. They're in high demand because they're used for patients using ventilators. So while hospitals may be able to access the drug, local pharmacies may not. All right, let's turn to the accusations from the opposition, from the Conservatives, that the government is shirking responsibility by avoiding uh, sessions of Parliament at this time. Uh, First of all, what needs to be uh, in place in our democracy, even in a time of crisis? And what are the options if if we were to bring Parliament back? Does it have to be in person? Could it be a virtual Parliament of sorts? 
Well, the technology is there for a virtual parliament. Other people are doing it. It's, it I, I know that it's happening in Scotland. I think it's happening elsewhere. The technology is there, but it's going to take a while to tailor it for, for Canada. Apparently, it would take until the middle of May to get this thing up and running. I don't think Canadians particularly care whether their MPs meet in person or whether they do it virtually. But I do think there needs to be some forum where where the government is questioned regularly, other than by reporters, which is the, the only way it's happening right now. I think our dem- democracy demands some kind of uh, accountability on the part of the government. And I think in, in the meantime, we've had two sessions already to pass legislation. It would seem to me a reasonable compromise for there to be face-to-face parliaments uh, where the opposition could question the government uh, until we can get this virtual parliament up and running. Yeah, is is there uh, pressure, do you think, to have some form of accountability for the government, some form of question period, um, to, to restore at least uh, the basic structure of our democracy, uh, even as this crisis continues to unfold? Or are the daily briefings from the prime minister and the responses from opposition leaders sufficient? Well, I think it's, it's been working not too badly so far. I mean, when the government overreached, there was a reaction in, in public and the opposition were able to make their point. You know, obviously the media is still functioning. There are still daily press conferences. There were opportunities to, to hold the government to account, but but clearly it's not ideal. I, I have some sympathy with the, with the opposition's point of view. They're obviously scrambling for relevancy because they can't make their points as easily. People are not as interested in what the opposition thinks. So I think that that having that uh, that forum is a legitimate thing to do, but I think you know, clearly, by mid-May, we need to have some regular forum where, whereby the government is held to account. You know, the government is making policy on the hoof here. It knows it's making mistakes. It's On a daily basis, it is tailoring policies that have already been made. I mean, the, the, the Prime Minister came out yesterday and, and made some minor, did some minor tinkering with the, uh, with the emergency response programme that, uh, you know, we'd found a problem. They've They've self, uh, they've course corrected. I think that the government has been doing a reasonable job on that. But um, you know, our democracy cannot rely on the government to police itself. It requires uh, the adversarial, adversarial nature of the system. It requires the opposition to be there too. All right, John. Great to have your thoughts on all of this. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. We're hopeful that all. Canadians will see the the need, and all parties will see the need for continued in-person sittings. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star asks why MPs can't work remotely when millions of others are. The Star writes, When the economy was locked down in mid-March, companies large and small had just days to respond. Hundreds of thousands of people suddenly found themselves working remotely. Yet five weeks later, our Parliament is still struggling with the same challenge. It can be done, as all those companies that managed to start working remotely, sometimes literally overnight, have shown. It just takes a bit of creativity. In the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne argues to prevent the next pandemic, we should be better prepared, but not less open. Coyne writes, For some, the problem is our exposure to events outside our borders. For others, it's our lack of preparedness. Dealing with the first entails the sacrifice of efficiency in the name of greater security. The second recognizes that efficiency is crucial to our society. If the case for efficiency remains undimmed, so does the case for globalization. 
Our prosperity and safety depends upon maximizing national productivity. Shockproofing the economy isn't going to do it. Open trade, buying in the cheapest market, selling in the dearest, is. In McLean's, Sergio Marchi asks if the U.S. empire is in jeopardy. He writes, The U.S. has been an able leader of the free world for a long time, but it's now looking tired and uncertain. Their global leadership is in serious jeopardy. If Donald Trump is re-elected, there's little hope for renewal. If the old American way is salvaged, we would continue to benefit from our long-standing relationship. If not, we must make strategic calculations. To do nothing would be an irresponsible risk to our continued political and economic prosperity as a nation. In the National Post, Andrew Potter argues, it's not a crime to disagree with health officials. Potter writes, Canadians have two traits that serve them well in normal times. First, they by and large trust their governments. Second, they tend to do as they are asked. But despite plenty of evidence that our health authorities have let us down in a number of ways, the actual path they've got us on has gone pretty much unquestioned. Our public health officers are no doubt doing their best under very difficult circumstances. But they are not gods, and it should not be heresy to question their judgment. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. It's going to be a busy day for the Prime Minister. In addition to his daily address to Canadians from Rideau Cottage, Justin Trudeau will also be talking with other international leaders and Canadian premiers. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, Justin Trudeau will be holding conference calls with both the provincial and territorial premiers, as well as his fellow G7 leaders. First, for the premiers' conference call, first and foremost, they'll be discussing one of the measures announced yesterday, a top-op guaranteeing essential service workers across the country a minimum wage of $2,500 a month. Now that top-up is going to be negotiated with the provinces because many of those workers are on the provincial payrolls. They include healthcare workers and especially the ever-important and often underpaid personal support workers and others in long-term care homes where the COVID-19 crisis is having its worst impact. The provincial and territorial premiers will also want to have an update on the ever-important national stockpile of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. And no doubt the premiers will want to discuss the Prime Minister's perspectives on where the COVID crisis is in the provinces and the territories and how that relates to an eventual reopening of the economy. Some premiers are further along in their thinking about a possible restart of the economy. For example, Saskatchewan's Scott Moe has said that he intends to announce next week what his plans are for getting things started up again. As for the Prime Minister's conference call with his fellow G7 leaders, uh, they'll be comparing notes on the progress battling the coronavirus pandemic. They'll also discuss future coordinated economic measures to try to revive the world economy. And who knows, they may also discuss the WHO and President Trump's decision to put on hold America's funding of the World Health Organization amid accusations that the organization has been manipulated by China who stands accused of suppressing vital information from the world community in the early days of the pandemic. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity, Mona Fortier, will take part in a virtual town hall meeting hosted by the Tri-Cities Chamber of Commerce, where she will discuss measures to support Canadians and businesses impacted by the coronavirus. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, April the 16th. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.